Happy History Hump Day. It's Julian Rushbrook, your host for A History Most Queer. And this is our first in a series of queer British monarchs. Today we'll be talking about Edward of Carnarvon, or Edward II. Now his reign, while short, was grand in its level of drama, horror, and innovations. He inherited a crown that was literally heavy with gold and jewels, and metaphorically so with the designs of his father, the threats of his neighbors, and the divided obligations of his heart and his duty. By most historians' assessments, Edward II's reign was one of the worst in English history. How much of that can be blamed on forces outside of his control is open for debate. But on the other hand, where some good could have been done, he was as apt to fail as to succeed. The French historian Pierre Chaplet argued that his delegating of governance and decisions to his subordinates was what made him, quote, not so much an incompetent king as a reluctant one. Due to this, during his reign, parliaments grew in their power as the gatherings of barons increased to include knights and burgesses in order to make political decisions. This increase in authority turned the gatherings to eventually become the institution that we see now at Westminster. Young Edward of Carnarvon's life began with a bit of a prophecy being fulfilled by deception, or at least that's the story that has been perpetuated. His father was King Edward I, and his mother was Queen Eleanor of Castile. By all accounts, Edward and Eleanor's love was strong, so much so that while heavily pregnant, Eleanor journeyed to Wales on the request of her husband. This was, according to legend, to fulfill a prophecy the English had been attempting to bring the Welsh to heal for some time, and the plan by Edward I was to call upon his strengths of wit rather than weapons. It was believed that Edward's birth would bring about a new King Arthur and would lead to England's glory. And so the prophecy was that this prince, the new prince of Wales, would be one that was born in Wales and could speak never a word of English. The Prince of Wales, a title now given to all heirs, to the English and later British crowns, was born at Carnarvon Castle on the 25th of April, 1284. As nobody could argue, the infant Edward spoke no English, but that was because he could not speak at all. It was a clever play, and the, the tradition stuck. Now, Eleanor of Castile was an interesting woman. His mother was far better educated than most women, and for that matter, most other medieval queens and she was a patron of the arts and a businesswoman, due in part to an enormous fortune that she inherited as Countess of Pontieu. 
The Prince Edward was not intended to be himself a king, as he had older brothers, John, Henry, and Alfonso. All of them died, however, and so at the age of only a few months, he was the heir to the throne. He would have barely known his mother, Eleanor, as she and the king were off to Gascony on the continent, leaving the child under the care of wet nurses and other household staff. In 1290, as part of the Treaty of Bergen, Edward I promised his then six-year-old son to marry Margaret of Norway. Now, Margaret had a claim to the throne of Scotland. And if her and Prince Edward had married their children, would then have claims to the thrones of four different kingdoms, Ireland, Wales, Scotland, and England. And those four crowns would have then rested on one head. And this dream of Edward I would have come true. Sadly, however, Margaret died later that year. And also later in 1290, Edward's mother, Eleanor, died. The young Prince Edward was brought up in a fairly normal fashion, although perhaps slightly less educated than his siblings. He spoke Norman French, and possibly English and some Latin. When he grew up, he took after his father, Edward Longshanks. He was described as tall, muscular, and handsome. So, quite a catch! Now let's get back to Edward I, or Edward Longshanks. So his plans of a united island weren't quite working out after Margaret's death. These plans would lead to a lot of problems in his son's life, especially in regards to Scotland. An uneasy peace was always on the verge of breaking into conflict. The film Braveheart, by the way, which is not exactly the most historically accurate, but nonetheless, it takes place in Edward's reign. Likewise, issues with France existed for the English kings. Their ancestral lands in southwestern France, in Gascony, would cause tensions on the continent. The Prince Edward did get some on-the-job training, though, as a 13-year-old was left in charge of England while his father, in 1297 through 1298, campaigned in Flanders, a part of modern-day Belgium, against the French king, Philip IV. He got even more training when, in the year 1300, his father took him to Scotland. In 1301, he took an army of 300 soldiers and captured Turnbury Castle. Other battles happened at the castles of Brecon and Stirling, where they were under, under siege. The constant conflict between England and Scotland would really truly help to develop the national identities of the countries as we know them today. England, for its part, had this dream of a united island. Scotland, on the other hand, had a dream of independence for its own affairs. This independence cause would be taken up in earnest in 1305 by Robert de Bruce, the eighth generation of French barons to bear that name. At first, Robert had been ambivalent to England even occasionally being an ally to Edward I. Then, he turned to help William Wallace to fight for the Scots in 1297. His fight for Scottish independence would carry through into the reign of Edward II. 
It was around this time that Prince Edward would become close to the man presumed to be his first major love, Piers Gaveston, another fellow Gascon. The two became inseparable, with Gaveston being first a squire to the young prince, and then was bestowed with a knighthood in 1306. A year later, King Edward I became exasperated at how close the two young men had become. The relationship raised eyebrows across the kingdom. All the young prince wished to do was be with Gaveston. This was not the only aspect of Edward Carnarvon that the English court found odd. The sports that were traditionally enjoyed by nobles, such as hunting or jousting, did not hold as much appeal for the young prince, who favored rowing, horseback riding, and hanging out with laborers, such as roofers. It seems the prince had a penchant for rough trade. One historian claims that when Gaveston was finally exiled to Gascony by King Edward Longshanks, father and son ended up in a bit of a brawl, with the king tearing handfuls of hair from his son's head. This catfight over attempting to keep Piers Gaveston uh, invested with lands and privileges would extend to the barons after Edward II acceded to the throne. Now, I've thrown in a few little jokes uh, here about rough trade and catfights, all to allude to, at least in my opinion, the sexual orientation of Edward II as being gay or bisexual. Like with many historical figures, it can be difficult to solidly confirm these things. We can rely on other early records of the man, but then again, those may be colored with biases held by the authors. One of, one of those authors, Adam Orleton, the Bishop of Winchester, wrote in 1326 that Edward was a sodomite. Other sources from later in that century also accuse him of sodomy. Now, sodomy had a rather broad definition at the time, including people who engaged in oral sex, non-missionary sex, and other activities. Nonetheless, even if these claims of sodomy were leveled against Edward and done so out of spite, it's difficult to dismiss this relationship between Gaveston and Edward as mere friendship. Edward repeatedly went to bat for Gaveston, often at the expense of his royal privileges and authority. It can even be said that the evolution of Parliament from an infrequent meeting of barons to the institution of legislation that we see today can be traced to this period. Many times concessions would be made to Parliament, all in attempts to keep Piers Gaveston close to Edward. Upon his father's death, the now King Edward II wasted no time in recalling Piers back to England, quickly leaving the young man as a de facto manager of the kingdom. With Piers back in England, the next thing on Edward's radar was to secure the, the bloodline of the Plantagenet dynasty. Negotiations, while difficult, were finally concluded with the French king, Philip IV, for the hand of his daughter, Isabella. The 12-year-old Isabella was married to Edward in Bologna in 1308, and then returned to England. Even for noble marriages, 12 years of age was seen as very young, especially with her husband being twice her age at 24 years old. The marriage started off rocky. The celebration of the coronation, which occurred soon after arriving back in England, happened in a space that was lavishly decorated with the emblems of Edward II and Piers Gaveston. The Queen's badges and arms were conspicuously absent. 
and it said that the king was hardly saying a word or seen around his queen. I'm sure that the insult was only the tip of the iceberg for reasons that Isabella held contempt for her husband's lover boy. Despite this, the queen would have four children, including the future king, Edward III, with her husband. It would seem that only a handful of names, by the way, existed in the early 14th century. You're going to see a lot of repeats of names. Now, it was not only the young queen who found the king's bow to be intolerable. The nobles in the realm complained that there were two kings reigning in one kingdom, the one in name and the other in deed. A tug-of-war began, with one faction being led by the king's cousin, Thomas, the Earl of Lancaster, who was the richest of the barons, and only willing to help Edward with conflicts in Scotland if his attachment to Gaveston came to an end. The other faction was led by the king and other barons such as the Earl of Lincoln and Hugh Dispenser the Elder. Now that name's going to be coming up a lot more later. Gaveston was eventually exiled from England again, but Edward kept trying to get his beloved peers back, which eventually happened after a lot of powers of the king were limited. It was not long before the barons regretted having two kings again. Many refused to attend a parliament in 1310 if Gaveston would be present. This posed a problem. Edward needed money, as he owed tens of thousands of pounds, around 15 million uh, pounds or so in today's money, to Italian banks. To pay for more military campaigns in Scotland, taxes needed to be collected. The barons finally agreed to a tax, but only with further limitations on kingly power, including curtailing his right to go to war or to give any lands to people. Gaveston again was exiled, but now from all of Edward's realms, including Ireland and Gascony. As more tensions rose between the barons and the king, Gaveston was again called back to England by Edward, reuniting with him in York. Edward, his queen, and Gaveston stayed in York, the three of them. The Earl of Pembroke was able to capture Gaveston and took him to Warwick Castle, where the Earl of Lancaster, the man who was the de facto head of the English barons, held a trial for Gaveston, and he was declared a traitor and then beheaded on June 19th of 1312. A civil war was averted over the death of Gaveston. Edward was heartbroken at the murder of his favorite, but had to settle for no retribution if he hoped to get military support against Robert the Bruce. A year prior, in 1311, at the Battle of Bannockburn, the English were defeated by Scottish soldiers. Edward's army was attempting to get up to more castles to fight against Robert's forces, but was cut off. Further troubles hit Edward in the form of climate troubles. The Great Famine of 1315, that extended to 1322, ravaged most of Europe. Crop failures and bad weather from the years 1315 to 1317 caused ripple effects leading to famine, disease, mass deaths, and even cannibalism. More contemporary research has found that a volcanic explosion in New Zealand may have altered climate conditions leading to this extreme wet weather that caused rotting crops and which led to the death of livestock 
and flooding. In England, it was seen as God's punishment for Edward II's weaknesses. More barons who had tried to form a peace between the crown and Lancaster turned from Edward, which led finally to a civil war in 1321. Two prominent barons in this period would now side or continue to side with Edward, the dispensers, Hugh the Elder and Hugh the Younger. Now the Younger is often viewed as another lover of the embattled king, and the civil war that arose was given the name the Dispensers War. Now the Dispensers were enemies to the Lancaster family, and of course the Lancasters were, or at least specifically the, the Earl of Lancaster, was kind of the opposing general on the other side. And so the lines were now drawn. After some clashes, it looked as though Edward would be deposed. To help keep his crown, he had to agree to exile the Dispensers and pardoned the other barons. It did not last long, this peace, as Edward wanted to exact revenge. A staged event where some of Queen Isabella's retinue were killed gave Edward justification to restart the conflict again and recalled the dispensers and pardoned them. At the Battle of Boroughbridge, the Earl of Lancaster, long a thorn in Edward's side, was finally captured and tried for treason. Like Edward's former lover, Lancaster was beheaded. Edward's power resurged and his detractors were executed. With England settled, he could refocus on Scotland and France. Scotland shortly came to an agreement with Edward, and conflict between those two stopped. But the same could not be said for France. The War of Saint-Saudot broke out in 1324. The brother of Queen Isabella, Charles, had now become King of France and had not been particularly fond of his brother-in-law. With an army of 4,400, Edward was no match for France's 7,000 soldiers. As a result, French people were arrested in England, and Edward seized his wives' lands in France. Although she would later serve to end the war between the two countries and function as an uh, intermediary, she never returned to England. Her love for that country had dried up. Part of the reason for Isabella's refusal to return to England was due to Hugh Dispenser the Younger's mistreatment of her and other noble women. But she also had started a romance with a baron, Roger Mortimer, who had been exiled previously by her husband the king. On September the 24th, of 1326, Mortimer, Queen Isabella, and her son, Prince Edward, who was the heir to the throne, then only 13 years old, invaded England at Orwell. The former enemies of Edward II, who had not been executed, now had a new banner to rally behind. Edward and Dispenser were on the run, and the Queen secured an alliance with the Church. In March of 1327, Edward's forces surrendered after four months of besiegement. Queen Isabella and Roger Mortimer tried Hugh Dispenser the Younger and sentenced him to be disemboweled, castrated, and quartered on the 24th of November, 1326. The king was given a choice 
to abdicate in favor of his son. And if he did not, not only would he lose his crown, but his son would as well, and another would be found to take over the throne. In tears, Edward agreed on the 21st of January, 1327. His son, the now Edward III, was crowned on the 1st of February of that year. The king had fallen, and he was now held prisoner at Berkeley Castle in Gloucestershire, where he died on the 21st of September, 1327. It was unclear whether his death at the age of 43 was by natural causes or murder. There were plots to free him, so we can't completely disregard the possibility that he was killed to ensure that peace would be secured in the kingdom. There is a rumor that ended up making it into a Christopher Marlowe play, in fact, that Edward II was executed using a red-hot poker that was jammed into his rectum. But it's a little bit outlandish, and I just don't think that that's what would have happened, because people would have seen that, and it would have been commented by actual documentarians of the time period. Either way, it seemed that he was dead. In 1330, his son Edward III had Roger Mortimer executed in a coup d'etat to remove Mortimer and his mother, the Queen, from power and having it now all under his control. Now, there was a little bit of a conspiracy theory that Edward II had actually escaped from captivity and be had become a hermit in the Holy Roman Empire. There was a letter that was confirmed to be the right age and it's valid, but were the contents of the letter actually legitimate? It's possible that the person who wrote it, who himself was a bishop, was trying to curry favor with the new King Edward III. So, most likely, it's just a bunch of BS. And Edward II, in fact, did die at Berkeley Castle. And so ends the story of Edward II and his two lovers, all three dead, without really accomplishing much except a bunch of bloody warfare. Was he the worst king in English history? Probably. And a lot of it was due to forces beyond his control. But a lot was also due to things that were very much in his power. And I hope that all of you have enjoyed this fun little story about one of Britain's queer kings. I'd like to give a special thanks to Pixabay, where I got uh, fun music and sounds for the podcast. And if uh, you have any criticisms, complaints, questions, you can get a hold of us at historymostqueer at gmail.com. And you can check out our Instagram page, also at historymostqueer. And I hope all of you have a wonderful week. And see you next week on Wednesday. Woo! <laughs>